Welcome to the Sim Cafe, a podcast produced by the team at Innovative Sim Solutions. Join our host, Deb Tauber, as she sits down with subject matter experts from across the globe to redefine clinical education and the use of simulation. So pour yourself a cup of relaxation, sit back, tune in, and learn something new from the Sim Cafe. Welcome to the Sim Cafe. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Susan Cardon Edgren. She's internationally known as a speaker, consultant, educational researcher with over 150 publications. Dr. Edgren was a consultant on the landmark National Council of State Boards of Nursing Simulation Study, which determined that up to 50% of traditional clinical could be replaced with high quality simulation. Dr. Edwin, we are so pleased to have you. What would you like me to refer you as? Please call me Susie. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Susie. Uh, we're gonna start and wanna say a couple things yourself to the audience. Hi, Ed, I love podcasting because you can't see me because I just came in from walking the dog and my hair is dirty and I've got a baseball cap on and I'm all sweaty, so it's lovely. <laughs> Thank you. So why don't you tell us about your journey into simulation, how you got started? Interestingly enough, it all started out at the University of Texas at Arlington when the graduate program received a grant that helped them buy a, a Mediman. And back then, this is mid-2000s, uh, early on, the things that looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger weighed a fortune, came in a giant crate. The graduate program nurses opened up the crate, looked at it, closed the crate, shoved it over in the corner and said, we don't have time for this, especially because they saw the manual that comes with it. It's, you know, the eight by 11, very three inch binder thing. It was, it was horrendous. Mindy Anderson worked with me, opened up the crate, got out this giant mannequin, fired it up, and we started using it in our undergraduate physical assessment class. And I was one of her helper teachers in that class. And we were doing things like, actually, this was mostly Mindy. I give her full credit for getting me sucked into this. She uh, was doing things like gluing pieces of rice to the edges of wigs to make knits to put onto the man, you know, on, to put the wig onto the mannequin so that when we were teaching skin, hair, nails, they would find knits in the wig on the mannequin. We were using the old, uh, I forget what they call them, the plastic things that go through the machine that you could copy stuff from the new computers that we all had now. Fred, we were copying things off the internet, like malignant melanoma things, and then copying them onto these transparencies and then cutting them out and sticking them on Arnold Schwarzenegger, the mannequin there. And the students had to find these things when they went in for the scenarios that we were writing at that point. And nobody really had scenarios. Nobody really knew what they were doing, but we were having a hell of a time. And we were teaching our students abnormal lung sounds using the mannequin. And we did test them on what sound is this? What sound is that? And because they knew that was going to happen, they got really good at back then. I think we called them ronchi and rails. And I think what are the big crackles and something else. So she got me started in it. 
We soon thereafter got a Lerdahl mannequin and unusual for the time and probably unusual even for today, all of our senior leadership within the School of Nursing were very forward thinking people. And they kind of came trooping one day down one day and saw this mini man and saw a Lairdall mannequin. And our dean's eyes just opened wide. She said, this is the future of education. And my boss was Beth Mancini. And she said, this is going to, well, she already knew it was big because it was big in in the American Heart Association world of mannequins and such. But everybody said, this is going to be big. And they got a grant. We had mannequins stacked like cordwood all over the place. We started using more and more mannequins and an executive decision was made that we would include eight hours of simulation in every clinical course within the School of Nursing, undergraduate at least. And that became the way it was. And we had to set aside space. We all started using more and more simulation. But again, we didn't really know what we were doing. At that same time, the editor of the journal Clinical Simulation in Nursing, which was self-published by the Anaxal organization, was working at our place. And she was going to be taking a medical leave or for some reason, along those lines, did not want to be editor of this self-published journal anymore. And she came down and asked me if I would take it over. And I said, "Uh, sure, sure. I read what they had published. And I said, this is so good. I don't understand why you're not publishing with a bigger, like somebody hasn't picked you up. And they said, we have tried with a publisher. And they said, we weren't ready yet. Of course, I didn't know what I was talking about. But I said, oh, I think you are ready. I think other people need to read this because this is the best stuff I've seen published out there. The Inaxel organization, it was really Meg McCariello. And to a lot of us in, in in actual, that means something. We, she was one of the initial founders of the organization and was with it from the beginning. She and I put together a little RFP and took it like little supplicants around to the place where all the nursing editors meet once a year. It's called the inane meeting. And Elsevier was the first group to say, yes, we'll, we'll take you. And we were a little different because we wanted to be online only, the first online only journal in nursing. None of the other journal publishers at that point were doing anything like that. And we were so small that and Elsevier was so big, they were willing to take a chance on us. And we were wildly successful from the get-go. So um, that is kind of how I got involved in all of this. Wow, thanks. It's good to hear uh, Beth Mancini was was your leader at that point. I had an opportunity to do a, um, a site review with her. Wow, is all I can say. I don't want to give any spoiler alerts, but she's going to be interviewed in one of the next uh, podcasts, and she's got some great stories also. Super, super. Yeah, she was fun to work for. As a matter of fact, she had always said, because she was a CNO at Parkland Hospital, I will come to academia when pigs fly. And so in her office (laughs) as the associate dean, she had a flying pig suspended from her ceiling and was always willing to share that story with others. So I will tell a little story about her before you get to her. Thanks. All right. My next question is going to be, tell me about your favorite simulation story, your favorite experience or something that was really impactful to you. Probably one of my favorite simulation stories was way back when, in the beginning, we were using simulation again in this physical assessment class. 
I finally took over as the, the leader of this class. And we had a guy who had started the semester, had been pulled to Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, pulled there, uh, was back a year or two later. And he'd been putting together people together on the battlefield. He was a paramedic rescue guy. And so he's sitting in the physical assessment class. And I said, wait, wait, wait. I said, come over here. I said, what are you doing in this class again? You got halfway through it the first time. He said, well, he said, I, you know, I didn't finish it. And, and we didn't get to heart and lungs. And I said, well, you didn't you fix people all over the battlefield? He said, all I needed to know was love dub, love dub, they're pumping blood and they're breathing. So that's all I, I know about that. I said, I'll tell you what. Let's do a little one-on-one. -on -one. Let me get you past all that. And what I would like for you to do is write the graduation scenario for the students in the class. And he said, okay. I said, because a lot of this is going to be a waste for you. So, you know, come to class when you need it. Otherwise, don't come. So he wrote, and a paramedic was the same thing. He'd been doing this for years. And so they're taking physical assessment. I'm just like, this is a waste. They wrote the graduation scenario. And wouldn't you know, it was so simple. It was lady complaining, um, has been in a car wreck, has chest bruising from her seatbelt. Her head has hit the steering wheel. And she is, she's becoming more and more confused in the emergency room. And so the students come down, they get the story, and they're supposed to take care of her. And if they had opened her eyes and looked at them, they would have seen that one pupil was blown and the other was not. But out of literally 100 students, only one group of five opened her pupils and looked at them and realized that she had I don't know, a head trauma of some sort. 95 students did not. And I thought this was so fascinating. And I, I, for the group of five that did, I said, why did you know to do this? And nobody else did because we know that this was basically a culmination of everything that they had learned over the course of the semester or not learned as the case may be. And this one group said, uh, well, we have somebody in our group who failed last semester. And so maybe she was paying more attention than the rest of us, but she said, no, we should probably look at her eyes because listen to her talking. You know, she's, she's 45 and she's talking about going to the high school prom as this person was getting more and more confused. And so they opened the eyes and looked. I said, isn't that interesting that what you, what you think you taught and what they can learn in a very short period of time, people cannot retain over a long period of time. So for me, that was very instructive. It became even more instructive when I was teaching, oh, I don't know, OB or something. And we were in simulation and they're doing something strange. And I said, why would you why, tell me about that? Why are you doing that? They said, well, you said a lecture last week, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, not on my worst day did I ever say anything like that. And that is when I really, really started understanding after having taught for a very long time that just because you say something in lecture does not mean that people are hearing, especially when we lecture for three hours at a whack, as we did at that time, that people can listen that long and retain anything, even if they're taking notes. So I really started devaluing the power of lecture and really started thinking about other ways to do things as an educator. And I really began to realize how important simulation really was. So I think that's one of my favorite stories about simulation. Another story I have that I think is very instructive is knowing this now, 
is that the, the belief that we check people off on clinical skills every semester and they graduate and they know what they're doing. And I think that is not true unless you've really used deliberate practice. And most places don't, and they don't want to for a multitude of reasons. So we'll keep getting exactly what we get. Well, in a place, we had started talking about deliberate practice and uh, the, the faculty were saying, but that's ridiculous. These people already know this stuff. And I said, I can guarantee you that they don't. And I said, and I can demonstrate it for you. Would you like me to do that? And of course, I, I don't know, uh, but I'm thinking, yes, yes, I'm going to be able to do this. <laughs> and so we go into the classes doing a refreshing their skills because they're getting ready to go out and do their capstone, which is 100 and something hours out there in the real world. And I said, I need, I need some people to volunteer to come over here and just do a Foley cath over here on this side on a mannequin, alone in a room, no harm, no foul, just come over here and demonstrate this skill. And in the simulation center that we were in, uh, faculty were not in the room. They were watching on, on monitors in the big control room. And so we had the clinical placement coordinator and we had the, like the head of the program in there. And they're just like, gloating, thinking this is going to be so wonderful because these students are over on the other side practicing their skills. And so 13 people come in, give or take one or two, and all but one of them fails miserably at putting in a Foley catheter sterilely. And thank goodness these people, these administrators, were in the control room where people could not hear them going, oh my gosh, I can't believe she's doing that or he's doing that. Because these were our best and brightest who volunteered to come over and demonstrate for us that they know what they're doing and oh, they didn't know what they were doing. So those are some of my favorite stories about simulation. Thanks, Susie. And I, I think I read that in your article on deliberate practice you, you published on that. Yes. It, it was a, a very, very great article. So my next question for you is going to be, uh, what your thoughts are on telehealth, where that field is going at this time. It's so funny that you ask that because I haven't reviewed for ClinSim a lot. I reviewed for some other journals. And every now and then, pre-pandemic, an article would come up on telehealth and, you know, different ways of doing it, pulling in the MPs to be the provider and the undergraduate students practicing using the telehealth monitors, et cetera, for different kinds of things. And I always thought, this is so quaint. This is really wonderful. You know, this is this is the wave of the future. But, but you know, you've, if you can't get reimbursed for that, nobody wanted to do it. And so these were very avant-garde, forward-thinking places that I thought, well, one day this will be important. And then COVID hit. And wouldn't you know, it became very important overnight. And so many other things that we thought were very forward-thinking at the time really became right now and very needed. So I think telehealth, because of third-party reimbursement, is going to stay huge, and rightly so. And it makes healthcare uh, more like what we says it is. Uh, we say it is like patient-centered, perhaps, where I don't have to go expose myself to other people being sick. And I can be at home and be sick and tune in on my computer to visit with a, a physician at, or healthcare provider. Having said that, it also helps highlight health disparities. If you don't have ability to get on a computer or an iPad or an iPhone and be able to meet with your healthcare provider, I think it's lovely. I think it's going to be really important. 
I think it's going to help a lot of nurses appreciate the probably very fine physical assessment classes that they had because you do a lot of assessment of watching people online now and doing that basic, what are you here for? uh, What are we going to be doing for you? So I think it could really improve assessment skills and ability to communicate with others. However, it will also highlight the lack of skill that so many of our um, new students are, are coming into school with because we have them say, and I know you've heard this, if my patients could just text me, we'd get along just fine. I, um, I, they'll sit and parallel play with each other. They won't look at each other and text each other, but they're sitting right next to each other. So the idea of looking at somebody and really looking at them. So let us hope that those skills are developed more and that in the telehealth classes, what are your thoughts? I had done some telehealth right at the beginning of the pandemic. My mom was dying of Parkinson's and uh, the nursing home was shut down. So I went there and did some visits with her and the rest of the family virtually and was able to have a, a little bit of, um, you know, end of life ceremony while she was still alive. So I was kind of using it then, getting comfortable with it and then recognized that, hey, this is, this is where we're going. Let's everybody pay attention because there were so many nuances to, you know, HIPAA, privacy, your ability to have a bedside manner, essentially. And those things needed to be developed. People needed to be aware of them. So I, we developed some courses at Innovative Sim Solutions on telehealth. And so I just see it as being a great opportunity to get everybody on the same page. And one of the things we're working on is there is no taxonomy. So if you look at how far we came when we created and you were part of that group. Dr. Lori was part of, you know, leading it. Dr. Lil Perito was actually the, the originator. But when we started that taxonomy, it gave us a framework to have a common language. When you can say, you know, red means stop, yellow means slow down, and green means go. When you have a common language, you can move things a lot faster. Yes. So we're kind of working on some glossary of terms and different things like that. And it's just been um, so much fun to be a part of this. this super, uh, super. Yeah. So needed. So we're going to have another interview with uh, you and Dr. Layton next week, where we're going to really dig deep into the NCSBN study, past and current. So I know that next week we're going to talk about that. But I would like to know my final question for you is, Where do you see simulation going in the future? I wish we would get to the holodeck phase because uh, that is where I want to be. I grew up watching Star Trek and I want it now. I think that uh, virtual simulation will be bigger and bigger. I think the metaverse is really, really interesting. I will say that back uh, 13, 14 years ago, I was at Washington State University and was able to put on a pair of the haptic gloves that allow you to feel things, even though there's nothing there. Those gloves back then were $15,000. I don't know if it was a pair or a piece. Uh, They were big. They were wired. Uh, I was, you know, wired up, but I was standing on what looked like a boxing ring. So it had, uh, so we're in the middle of the boxing ring and I put on uh, the Oculus Rift 
and uh, these gloves. And I was moving O-rings around from one, one thing to another and I could feel the weight and it was the most amazing experience. I've never had on another pair of gloves that were that good ever. Uh, but this company had gotten the contract from one of the big truck companies to build the truck cabs uh, at a time when women who were four foot nine and 90 pounds were starting to drive trucks the same truck cab that a guy who was six foot eight and 350 pounds was driving in. And they had to build the truck cab so that it could adjust from four foot nine person to six foot eight person. And how do you arrange all of the things in the cab for that? In that virtual reality world, I got to you know see those truck cabs, experience the weight, all that kind of thing of being in that kind of environment, which really got me excited about virtual reality. So when we started working in that area, I knew what it was. I knew what the possibilities were. And I had worked with a guy that got one of the first pair of Oculus Rift designer glasses as a developer when I was at Boise State University. And we designed a fully catheter insertion game, rudimentary for sure, but space age. It was so fun. And students loved it. Faculty couldn't get past the, and this is what it can't do. And, and there's some negative learning going on because again, the developers didn't know what sterility was all about. And having a menu pop up on your hand when you flip it over sounds like a lot of fun, except that when you realize you're now having them touch things that they shouldn't be touching in space and not in real life. Everybody knows a menu is not going to pop up on your hand when you flip it over. But if you're learning, is that a good idea? And I, we were, I was concerned about negative learning from that. Having said all of those things, and you can't see me waving my hands and talk about this, but when we finally got the developers who were doing the, the real build in the virtual world, come down to visit us in Boise from Wisconsin, I guess it was. These are two guys who've never seen a Foley cat in their life, never seen a mannequin in their life. And we said, go over and put this catheter in the mannequin sterling. And no medical background whatsoever. They've just built the game. And they went over, both of them, two for two, did it completely sterile, 100% correct the first time. So even as rudimentary as the game was, it worked. I think that the ability to teach certain skills and to work in that space once we have AI from the mannequins and they look a little more real in that second life kind of world, in that virtual world, I think it's going to be a game changer. So for all the people who are spending oodles and oodles of money right now on more mannequins, I would say, don't do that. Spend more and more money on open spaces that you can put computers on wheels. I guess you would call them cows, computers on wheels, that you can move around into 10 foot wide spaces that you can then cordon off tape off, whatever you want to do to give people a place to practice and where they can freely move around makes a lot more sense than spending more and more money on mannequins. So that's what I think the future of simulation is going to be. I think there'll always be space for mannequins for different things, but I think we're going to move past them and in short order and move on to other things. Wow. Very, very interesting. Any other thoughts that you want to provide our listeners? I would say that the thinking that has created a lot of the problems that we have in education today, that same thinking is not going to get us out of the mess that we're in as far as 
brick and mortar type of teaching and uh, holding on to books and more and more uh, reading and doing what we've always done. I think we really do need to think about, especially because the pandemic gave us an opportunity to think about change, new ways of doing the things that are really important to us today and that our learners are different, but the faculty are not. So I think we need to be willing to explore and try new things and uh, keep what works and get rid of the things that are not working and move forward. Yes, we have to be in a brave new world. I agree. Susie, is there anywhere that our listeners can get a hold of you? Are you on social media platforms? I'm on both LinkedIn and Twitter. I do not live on them. I look at them once a week, Uh, more LinkedIn than Twitter. Uh, Although I think Twitter is actually a little faster and a little easier for everybody to use. But that's where I, if I have a social media, that's where I'm hanging out. Okay. Well, I really want to thank you for this opportunity. You've been a delight to interview. I look forward to seeing you at IMSH. And actually, while I look forward to our interview next week, which will be wonderful. Yes, me too. And and Kim just happens to be passing through. So we said, hey, you know, why don't we get together since we've done so much work together? So she'll be with us for a few days. And then she's heading on back to uh, Qatar. Yes, the first interview that I did, the first podcast was with her. And she was just, she was wonderful. And, you know, I did work with her for so long. So thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing you on our next podcast. Okay, thank you. Thanks for joining us here at the Sim Cafe. We hope you enjoyed. Connect with us at www.innovativesimsolutions.com and be sure to hit that like and subscribe button so you never miss an episode of the Sim Cafe.